Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More this week with Aiden and myself. And our guest this week is Andre. He's a coworker of mine at CMAC, which is the immigrant and refugee social service nonprofit based in South Philadelphia. And him and I, we share a lot of interesting conversations in, in our past for the past year since I've been in the agency. And I'm very excited to have him on board for this episode to discuss whatever interesting topics that we have in mind and get uncovered a little bit more about who he is and what makes him Andre and what brought him to him so far in his journey. So I'll turn the mic over to him. And Andre, uh, would you like to share your journey so far? Yeah, thanks for, for having me, guys. It's it's a pleasure to share a little bit more about myself. Obviously, uh, Benoit and I, we're, we're familiar with each other. We've had, we've had really great discussions. And um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always... I'm always a little intimidated about the idea of sharing my journey uh, because in, in many ways, I, I feel like uh, it's, it's, life doesn't always conspire the ways that we uh, would love them to. And it, it, it takes a healthy respect to appreciate the different pieces of the long view of your life and how they've impacted where you are now. And I think that's the story for me. You know, I what what comes up very clearly for folks is my accent. You know, I'm I'm from Jamaica. I was born in Jamaica, and most of my my childhood was spent with uh, with my my two siblings. Uh, I have two sisters, and we lived in a family with my mom, grandmother, and my aunts. And so, uh, my own views of who I am uh, as as a black man. Uh, it really is rooted in being parented by a strong black woman. Uh, she, my mother, got married when I was uh, seven, seven or eight years old. Before that, uh, she was single. My father was not at home, and so much of my identity and how I how I move in this world. Was was shaped by by her and the other strong black woman in woman in my in my family. Uh, my my ideas about about being ambitious and being enterprising, and um, being a, or at least my efforts uh, to be a thinker uh, and an and, and an intellectual was pretty much shaped in how she lived and how she modeled her life. Uh, she 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 took significant risks. Uh, for us, and I think that uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure if there is going to be a point in my life where I truly appreciate and understand what that meant for her, at least from the standpoint of the sacrifices that she had to make. But uh, you know, even if it's just an appreciation of a bit of that, I think the growth that I've experienced, my own journey, has been first of all shaped by that. So of course, uh, myself and so you're a uh, social worker. You have a master's degree in there, and then you talked about in your life you took a pretty hard pivot from theology background after you converted to Christianity, and now you're working in the social service sector, which is of course driven by your mission, your purpose, and to give back to to the community through your own ways. 
Could you talk, tell us a little bit more about that transition, uh, your experience with Christianity, your experience to theology school, and what made you to come with that, that recognition or to the need to pivot into something different? Yeah, I think it, it's theology isn't very um, much of a, of a dramatic pivot from social work. Uh, you know, initially, I was saying to a friend of mine this morning that I really never started out as a spiritual person. You know, for my teenage years, my early teenage years, I was actually very, very um, staunchly against religion. In fact, I, I don't even think I was an agnostic. I'd consider myself an atheist. I was committed to this idea that uh, if we can't root any kind of uh, facts or truth in evidence, then why should we, you know, why should we aspire to believe something? And um, when I was 17 years old, I had a, a, a out of this world kind of experience and um, it was what's typically considered in Christianity a, a conversion experience. It wasn't at church. Uh, it wasn't at a religious event. It was at home. And um, there's so many different things within a two-week period after that conversion that led me to, uh, to church. Uh, and then ultimately, inevitably, I think, led me to considering theological studies and at the time, as a part of a church organization that really believed that young people were the future, and so they invested in me, and they they uh, they paid my tuition, most of my tuition fee for four years, and it was really an exciting time for me because one, I was never sure as to whether or not I would be able to afford collegiate education. You know, I. My none of my sisters had gone to college at the time, and they were older than me. And so the 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 journey for for me, like many other Jamaican men at the time, was once you've completed high school, you you'd be looking for work. And after working a while, you'd probably be able to to land a good job where you'd be able to do school part time and and finance that. Uh, but thankfully, you know, shortly after high school. I, I spent a year doing doing studies in marketing and sales, had my conversion experience, enrolled in theology school, did four years of that, and was actively involved in ministry for for ten years. I was not a a ordained pastor. I never ever thought that that was my call. I I have always felt like I was a misfit, and I think other people as well thought, hey, you know, he doesn't fit. The, 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 the standard or the typical caricature of, of, of who a minister would be. And I was happy about that because it gave me the liberty to really travel and to be a sort of itinerant preacher, as it were. And uh, most people expected not a pastoral figure per se, but a young man who was a Christian intellectual and also someone who was a teacher. And that's essentially who I was for those years. Uh, when I migrated to, uh, to America, uh, this was years after I, I, I migrated to America, I was working with a church as well in the capacity of a, of a consultant. And my, my role was really to, 
to work with this church to mobilize their uh, their membership to um, establish presence within community and has also engaged in, in in ministry work so there's also preaching and so on it still didn't look like uh, it wasn't as active I wasn't as as active as I was in Jamaica and um, that was a challenge for me I struggled with that you know I was the young minister who was preaching every Sunday who was a youth and student director at a large church in Jamaica I was uh, teaching uh, part-time as well you know Bible studies and so on and, and my life was very active when it came to church and religion and here it is I, I migrated to the States and I'm at this one church and I'm preaching once every month or every other month and I struggled with that and and I and and it, it sort of created a an identity crisis because I started to to doubt whether or not I should continue this 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 journey as a minister and I also struggled with the realities of living in a country where I don't have or I did not have the same kinds of social connections as I did as I did in Jamaica. And it, it really was uh, an anxiety-inducing experience for me. It really was uh, an experience that led to, in many respects, self-alienation. You know, for me to cope, I needed to be able to compartmentalize and to to dismiss aspects of my my identity that were important and I, I constantly live with this this sort of tug of war like what what next uh, and that's where I I chose to that was when I chose to uh, to to enroll or to apply for uh, uh, graduate studies in, in social work in New York you know I was looking for a degree that still had that sort of uh, virtuosity and also one a degree that tapped into my my skills and my interests uh, more so my interest in leadership and management and so social work seemed to fit both categories you know my studies was in social work and its orientation uh, was in organizational management and leadership so I was like wow here we go here's a degree uh, it allows me to feel like I am still able to change this world, and it, it gives me an opportunity to 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 utilize skills and to grow in the area of leadership. So, when you had that decision making process to make a, a transitional pivot from an industry to a completely different industry, just like I was, I came from a private sector, took a hard pivot to the nonprofit world. Was it like a gradualism, like a gradual process or organization, or was it like a specific point where it really, really triggered you to make that leap of faith? Yeah, I, I think it was gradual. I think it was gradual, but it there were specific experiences that certainly uh, played a, a dominant role in me making that transition. For me, it was really a very existential crisis, right? Um, working in a church and doing ministry and then not having that outlet as much as I did in Jamaica. I also, you know, came to a, 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 a church community that was not as progressive uh, as the previous church communities or faith communities that I was used to. Uh, you know, a little bit more traditional in, in, their, in, their, in their ideas about the role of women, uh, traditional 
in in their opinions about a number of things and that 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 was very 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 restrictive and constraining in my mind and it also i think uh at least then it created an impediment to the the scope of work that i could do and the scope of work that i believe that church could do within community and it was very frustrating to me uh one of the uh i think major influences that led me to to looking in the direction of of another profession was the fact that after a while I was not being invited to preach and and that was part, partially because I had not in in church language transferred my membership from one church in Jamaica to a church in America and I thought that was that was quite bizarre that I would not be asked to do something that I've done for years and that I've had a reputation for doing because I had not essentially put my name in black and white on a church's roster. And so that was uh yeah, that was very disappointing and it 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 certainly it certainly uh did not lend itself to me feeling like I wanted to expend my efforts in 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 the work of of the local assembly yeah that makes sense and one of the things is like they are definitely related like i kind of see how that bridge made sense of theology and then moving into having more sustainable change within an organization rather than a church so what are some of the skills that you brought from you know your upbringing and even uh theology not uh theology education into I guess, would you call it the corporate world or kind of just the opposite side? Like what skills and or values did you bring into yeah. your new experience? Yeah. So I think both uh, social work or more precisely human and social services uh, shares, the industry shares similar assumptions with, with religion and, and, and with faith communities. And, and it's that there's brokenness in this world. You know, it could be a result of social, socioeconomic realities. It could be based upon racial disparities. It could be based upon whatever it is. The, the reality is that the world can be a cruel place and it can be a, a, a hard place to live and, 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 and to live in a way where, um, where we're happy. And so, my transition to social work wasn't very difficult because I already had a great appreciation of those realities. And I also had a great appreciation of hope as well. And I think both industries as well, human and social services and, 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 and faith communities, or at least the work of faith communities, share this idea that there is hope. And, 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 and it's an audacious thing, but, but in many ways... I, as a as as a minister speaking to someone who um, sends a message saying hey I'm, I'm gonna commit suicide and being able to counsel that person and and to 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 somehow be able to inspire this person to believe that there is more to live for very much resonates with some of the work that I do as a social worker this idea that there are families that I speak to, that may have similar uh, kids that may have similar behavioral experiences or who may who may also be suicidal or who may be contending with just real grim realities of life 
and being able to do assessments and propose interventions that ultimately inspires this young person to say, hey, there is more to live for, or this isn't the dead end. This isn't the end of my, uh, you know, of my journey. There is more. I feel like both worlds have offered those possibilities. And so it's, it really isn't very difficult to make that transition. Uh, as, as a minister, I, you know, I was very much involved in leadership and, 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 and developing teams, you know, yes, it was around, around ministry efforts, doing work in community and, and, and so on. Uh, and I think as a social worker, I've also had the privilege of doing that. It may be more in organizations with, with different modalities uh, versus ministries, but I've had the chance to work with 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 people and 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 to be very deliberate about mobilizing them towards a vision and towards a, a mission of a, of a of a department and so that that also my experience working in church lent itself to me being able to pull from that currency of 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 people engagement and people skills and to inspire action, and uh, to inspire hope, and to inspire people to see the best of themselves and and you know and, and their potential. That's great. I really would like move into leadership uh, a little bit later. But one thing that I think you just talked through that I think would be really impactful for people to hear is kind of when dealing with these harsh realities, whether that's within theology or within social work. What is the strategy that you? give to the clients you're working with? Is it kind of like the acceptance of the current reality or an optimistic lens for the future reality? Kind of what would you kind of talk them through in reframing their current situation? I think that it comes from a place of, of well-intentioned leaders, well-intentioned people who have, uh, have been conditioned to think that Leadership and management means that you are problem solvers. And if you can't solve a problem, then you're incompetent. And if you can't hold the reins on the situation, figure it out and make it better, then your price as a leader is questioned. And so most organizations, or let me say some organizations, are still influenced by that kind of thinking. so I think that's one aspect of it. I think that, I do think that society has a lot to play with that as well. Like the long history of society, the long view uh, of, of history is one, at least for America, that has been patriarchal. And our systems of governance, economic systems, and so on, do represent essentially a, a patriarchal set set of, of 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 conditions and usually where there is patriarchy there is also paternalism and uh, there is usually uh cases of of men who who define their roles um and and many times gendered their roles in ways that uh suggests if they are the ones who are solving the problems then they aren't men 
you know, if they're not the ones who are figuring things out, then their masculinity is in, is in question or comes into question. And these are our fathers, our uncles, our brothers, and these are sometimes ourselves. And we occupy organizations and we essentially transfer that kind of thinking from different relationships and different roles uh, to our role of leadership. So earlier you talked about how this people skills communications like occurrences, right? And I think there's a very selective few occupations such as barbers, preachers, uh, ministers, and yourself, social workers, who you really, really predicate your 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 lifestyle, your work style, and a lot of c- components of your work based on the occurrences of communications. So of course, you coming from as a former minister, you definitely embody that virtue of communications, right? That the idea of relatability. I think a lot of minister, ministers, especially barbers, they have this innate superpower, I call it, to relate with anyone on the spot within the first five minutes, 10 minutes. And you can, by the end of my like one hour barber session, I told them my whole life, my whole vision, my philosophy. So wait a minute, I'm just getting my hair cut, you know? And I think most ministers and preachers that I've exposed and experiences with and the more successful ones, they're, that ability gets magnified and they're really good at relating to people. And of course, a lot of people may not know this. I learned this after I uh, started working at our Curian agency is to be a social worker, you have to have master's degrees, right? Which is a master's in social work. So that itself comes with a volume of quality and criteria, and, you know, it definitely adds value to your skill sets. So you think how much of that, the empathy, the uh, ability to relate that people skills is come from the training of, of the school or you think that's come from uh, internally for you, who you are as a person and from your experience as a preacher? Yeah, I think it's a it's it's coming from a combination of, of different things, right? So there is the training, uh, but in many ways, it's very difficult to train uh, or to teach someone empathy. Uh, many people have said it's essentially impossible to train or teach someone to have empathy while working with others in need. Um, altruism, you know, folks have said, "Hey, you can't you can't teach altruism," and um, and I believe that I do think that my work, whether it was as a minister or as a social worker and, and, and the, the ways in which I have impacted people in altruistic ways is a result of uh, you know, my nature nurture. I, I think I, I had it modeled from a very young age. My mother uh, was and still is essentially the most generous person. Uh, that I've met the most empathetic person that I've, I've ever met. And so from a very young age, I had that modeled. Then uh, uh, definitely the teachings, uh, Christian teachings, but just not Christian because my, my spiritual journey encompasses Christianity. It encompasses Eastern spirituality and Buddhism as well. And a fundamental piece, a fundamental tenet or practice to these religions or practices is is unconditional compassion and so uh, because i've spent enough time uh, studying literature and also engaging in liturgy and also my you know uh, from a pedagogical standpoint i've also been constantly being exposed to this idea of love and compassion and, and, and grace and giving and so on. I think after a while you're conditioned to to at least aspire to be that, 
to other people. So for me, it's a it's a combination of 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 teaching and training in formal ways. It's a result of of spirituality and um, and it's a result of of having having people like my mom and and other others around me who have modeled what kindness and generosity and and empathy looks like yeah because what i realized is like leadership gets manifested and displayed in different different formats in the private sector and then the nonprofit sector is the reason why i'm very close with you and well even though we're in different teams is that well is definitely one of the most compassionate and generous and graceful leader or boss uh, from my recent years uh, switching from private to now and i'm sure you display similar style of leadership for your team so do you think that because it sounds like a lot of your actions and behaviors and your vision is deeply rooted in the idea of uh, compassion empathy right oh yeah of so, course um, so would you say that your leadership is like compassion-based leadership and how does that get displayed in a day-to-day or your, your work style overall yeah yeah i would say that i would say that my leadership is very people-based it's people-centric and by virtue of being people-centric it means that i prioritize the situation and circumstances that present themselves as i relate to those who i am privileged to work with and how i manage those situations and circumstances and how i co-create in those circumstances um how i inspire others to 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 be their you know the best version of of who they want to be will require me to be compassionate the fundamental pillar i guess is that leadership is a privilege that i that i get i get to work with folks and i put them they drive they drive the relationship the idea of giving people the latitude to drive a relationship that you are a manager or a coach is is difficult but but once it's people centered then you realize that the kind of results that folks are looking for and the fabric of what makes an organization thrive does require you to put those you lead first and to be able to work with them to navigate whatever it is that may impose challenges in that kind of relationship. Now, uh, I just want to point out what you said, which I really, really liked. You talked about how you work with the people, but you manage their situations. So it's the fact that you're using those verbiage, in particular, talk about you're not managing your 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 team members, right? Because you're their leader. You supervise them, you manage them, you provide mentorship, coaching to uh, best cultivate their skills. But I like how you say you work with them rather than you manage with them, which says a lot about your leadership and your you as a person. Yeah. So so like I tell people all the time. So coaching is a big thing for me, and I'm really really trying to uh, to delve a little bit more into. Uh, into what coaching really is and integrating that more into my my work. And, you know, they've always said that a consultant is one who, you know, who says, hey, want to learn learn to ride a bike? Well, here's a manual, right? Check page one, page three, page four, and and you'll just read it. You'll figure it out, right? Here's Here's a resource, here's a manual. And then they say, okay, the therapist, the therapist will say, okay, want to ride a bike? Well, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. What does riding a bike mean to you? 
you know, our, the, the, the therapist is probably going to try to make connections between this person's past and their efforts and um, the different kinds of motivations. And the coach, the coach is really interested in saying, hey, well, let me see what skills you already have, right? Let's figure out what resources you have and figure out how we can leverage that to or leverage those skills for you to be able to reach or achieve the outcome that you have set, right? And so I think there's no way you can really be the kind of leader that is effective and is effective at what's considered people management. You know, again, it's not a term that I like to use, but it's, it's a common term, people management. If you're not willing to work with folks to leverage their skills and to allow them to, to drive the direction, to drive the intensity, to drive um, the scope of where they want to go. Yeah, no, I think those are really simple but pretty elegant analogies. So how, as the coach, right, as a coach who's interested and passionate and have experience in organizational leadership, but of course what you do is coach, not a, you're not just providing a manual, not a consulting, you're trying to leverage them. Like, like uh, what our, one of our previous coach, he's like a mindset coach he talked about, he has his key phrases of catchphrase of unlocking their new strength because they're simply opening the, the keys into the inner qualities they already had. They're trying to just um, open their untapped potential. They're not really like, transferring or getting new uh, talents from elsewhere. They're coming from inwardly, which is sounds like what you're doing. How do you distinguish between enableism and empowerment? How do you make sure you're not enabling your team members versus you're trying to empower them? Because by being so people-centric and so much compassion and empathy, I'm sure that can sometimes get tricky and may cloud your judgments because you want the best, you want to leverage the skill sets of your team members, but sometimes that could definitely be seen as enabling. So how do you deal with that? And just tell us more about your leadership style. Yeah, so what's key is awareness. Uh, I think anyone who is a manager or a leader or, or so uh, definitely has to develop a keen sense of awareness, you know, and it starts with knowing, okay, hey, what are my motivations here? What are my skill sets? And how does that play into my how how I work with someone and then developing a greater awareness of the person that you're supervising or you're leading as well and as a leader your job is to work with that person to for them to identify their expectations for them to identify their benchmarks and um, and I, again as I said to co-partner in a way that you're you're able to see them being challenged enough to grow and to support that and to continue to facilitate in interesting ways, uh, in effective ways, opportunities for them to continue growing. Really well said. One thing that you kind of mentioned and kind of comes into all of the management styles you've been talking about is you said a pillar is unconditional compassion which is something you learned earlier and then continue to bring into your current work. Are there any other pillars of management styles or, I guess, advice for other leaders that kind of is like a foundation of what to build on? Yeah. Uh, so for my team that I currently work with, 
Fluidity is very important. I am not a micromanager, right? I think it's very important, especially for some jobs. Now, you know, I work with I work with case managers. It's a very very mobile job. Uh, case managers are working independently, and so micromanaging is really stepping in their way and preventing them from doing the job that you hire them to do. Like, why hire someone who you? have a need or feel the need to micromanage. It means that your recruitment and talent talent management uh, process is, is defective and, and needs to be revisited. So we function in a space that is extremely fluid, but it's one that prioritizes three things. One, it prioritizes uh, responsibility. So there's that space, it's fluid. Folks that I work with, they are responsible. They understand that one expectation is that you take responsibility for your actions, good or bad, you know, and mm-hmm. I rarely ever use those terms, good or bad, because I feel like uh, whatever the result is, it's an opportunity for learning. It's a teachable moment. It's it's something that we can evaluate, dissect, and, and grow from. So we're taking responsibility. Uh, transparency is also key. I think that that has really served uh, me in this job, working with the team I work with, and also previous uh, previous uh, m- relationships with teams I worked with in other jobs, right? Just this mm-hmm. idea of being transparent. And it's not something that's easy to build. And as a leader, you have to respect that everyone is not the same place. And that's fine. And that's, a, that's also a great thing. The level of diversity around vulnerability is super crucial, right? So people are as transparent as they are open to being vulnerable, right? And so uh, we are very transparent. So we are open about where we are, how we feel, and it really helps in the whole relationship management process. So we're clear as to, okay, well, I may not be as motivated at this time to engage in work this with this kind of energy because my pet died or, or whatever it is, or, you know, I don't feel like my job at present you know this is just an example uh, mm. of of where transparency is effective a, 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 a case manager or an employee being able to say to a manager hey i am really not sure if there is the level of job security that i'd want right now you know i feel like my job is threatened there isn't that psychological safety that's usually required for me to be an engaged employee so transparency is important to facilitate that kind of context um, and you're able to work from that. Uh, So there's taking responsibility for actions, there is transparency and there's accountability, right? So so there is that piece of our work where, um, you know, I, for example, have to model that, hey, there are times where I made missteps you know, uh, administrative missteps. There may be times where I fail to follow through and I have to be held accountable uh, for that because once we're able to embody that level of of accountability as a team and even in my individual relationships with each each case manager, we are able to rebuild trust, right, in our relationship. And trust is literally the most essential currency of any relationship right and um and so that's so that's those are key elements to leadership so i'd say to to every to every leader uh definitely unconditional compassion people 
uh, should be able to bring their whole selves to work without feeling judged, without feeling like they're, they're going to be isolated or ostracized. So that's one. And, 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 and uh, people should be able to work in a space where they're, able, where they're transparent, where they are challenged to take responsibility and they're also challenged to be accountable for their actions. And um, other aspects of, of, of leadership that I think are crucial is um, diversity. I am very pro-diversity. I think, especially in the eras of diverse thinking, like diver- thought diversity is very, very important to uh, problem solving. You know, it, it, when, whenever you have a workspace that encourages and celebrate diverse ways of thinking and looking at things, we're able to take what I call an interdisciplinary way of coming to a solution or arriving at a solution. Sorry, uh, people come to work with different backgrounds, different experiences, it could be formal education or, or not. And though all of that is of value and a great leader is able to, to, to navigate that and to figure out with his or her team how to use all that diversity in a way that ensures that the organization thrives and that the team thrives and that there is alignment with our efforts and our mission and that fundamentally our outcomes are um, are met. So um, I hate talking about work, especially on a Sunday during this podcast session, but uh, I have a question for you, Andre, and then for Aiden and for the listeners out there, I want to fill in a little context because you know being a context creates content so for andre's team he's in charge of north northeast region Mm -hmm. and his team suffered a three or four employee losses the past three months which is extremely high turnover rate when your whole team is seven people and of course you talked about all these pillars of leadership such as accountability transparency you know compassion unconditional compassion but how did you as a leader uh, compartmentalize and internalize that the loss because I'm sure you and the, our HR coordinator who's in charge of hiring and giving out offers, you sit through all those interviews before you make a decision. And of course you exert a lot of energy and time and resources to make sure you're bringing the best talents. You want to, of course, empower your team by having all the talents out there, right? And so how do you, uh, so how, how has it been for you facing those high, uh, high turnover rate the past three months with losing four brilliant um, hirees? And how do you internalize it? How do you compromise that? Yeah, I, I mean, retention or issues of retention is always a challenge for every leader. You know, the idea is you want to ensure that you are, you have the, the kind of capacity to drive the results that you are employed to, to you know. And so uh, it was definitely a challenge to have in quick succession folks uh, resigning one of the things that leaders have to do, I'll say, is to figure out exactly what's happening here. You know, is this a trend? Um, looking at each situation case by case, like what's what's up here? Is there something systemic? You know, and this is how I guess I'll answer that question in a more general way is asking, OK, is there something systemic here? In other words, organizations are like ecosystems, right? So there is eco- ecosystems replenish ecosystems um, regulate, ecosystems, um, they also deco- decompose, right? That's, that's, and, and it goes through that cycle. 
and it goes through life stages as well or life cycles as well and so uh there are sometimes things that are introduced in an ecosystem that throws it off that throws off that regulation process it stays there for a while and it becomes something that that's systemic and it creates a breakdown and then it moves from a breakdown to a dysfunction right and so organizations are a lot like that sometimes and so you have to ask those questions as a manager but i think it, it it's an important question for for other folks as well not just the program manager it's important for those who are in uh, senior levels of leadership it's an important question for board members as well depending on the size of the organization right and so asking that question is this a systemic issue is this because we are as an organization there are dysfunctions or there is a breakdown right so asking that question then you also have to ask the question okay is there is there something um it's a reflective process as well like is there something about my leadership was there are there patterns that are not lending itself to the kind of retention and the kind of employee engagement uh, that I would like to see. So that's a, also a very important question. It's sometimes a hard question depending on who you are. Uh, and then another question that you, you also have to ask is like, okay, well, are these unique circumstances that essentially is rooted in what folks may be experiencing, the, the folks who resigned, right? And for me, in addressing case managers resigning in quick succession meant that I had to engage in that kind of clinical assessment, you know, that kind of work to figure out what what was happening here and to make necessary adjustments, especially if it had to do with my leadership and to make necessary recommendations uh, if it had to do with something that was more systemic, you know. And um, sometimes as well, I think I should say that the, the macro realities of the work landscape also influences those those things it's it's something that it's not spoken about as much but but the 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 job market also does play into excuse me just does play into uh retention levels i i this is definitely one of not one of those situations by this i mean folks who resigned uh it, it's i don't think it was the macro realities mm-hmm. In the case of macro realities, I guess this specific circumstance aside, if there is, say, a systemic issue existing within a company, what role can employees and managers take in solving those, uh, you know, fixing those realities kind of, especially from an employees, I think a lot of our listeners are employees of, you know, kind of first to second year associates. What role can employees play in fixing systemic issues? That's not the easiest thing to answer because in reality, systemic challenges and working through those dysfunctions and and those breakdowns oftentimes is first the responsibility of those in the highest levels of leadership in an organization. Uh, Folks who are in management at whatever level it is should have a pulse on what's happening in their organization. You... For me, you know, I am a middle manager. I'm not a senior manager, but one of my responsibilities have have over the years, wherever I'm working, 
my responsibility has been to have an a, a clear idea of my organization's culture and what life cycle it, it, it it's in you know is mm-hmm. it is it at a stage where we're growing is this the genesis is it a point of maturation are we now you know where are we uh, what may be impacting it what are the forces that are um, regulating um, this ecosystem what are the forces that are replenishing it what are the forces that are that are you know decomposing certain resources or that are impacting or impeding on certain opportunities what are the, the issues that may be impacting relationships so as a middle manager that's not typically something that I necessarily need to do but I you know it's a part of my training as well but I do it because in my work with those I supervise I have to be able to work with them to navigate the organizational realities so knowledge of the organizational realities puts me in a better position to navigate with my team um, I feel like this is a long way of answering the question but I would ju- I would just say that it is first and foremost the responsibilities of senior management to fix that problem to identify it very clearly and to fix it depending on what the problem is or let's put it this way depending on what the challenges are managers have a responsibility to communicate with everyone irrespective of the tier of the organization if it's a very significant challenge to communicate that hey here are the realities here is our game plan here is our approach to addressing this managers and leaders need to identify pathways for everyone at whatever tier of organization it is to be a voice in addressing those challenges no, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to do that. I know there may be people listening to say, hey, well, do you want the person who is at the very first or entry level part of this job to address something that's systemic because there is an, uh, an issue with senior management? Well, yes, yes. There are ways, there are ways in which feedback um, garnering feedback from from employees on attitudes and perspectives. Uh, there are different ways to essentially see how high-level challenges or high-level problems may be impacting, and not maybe, but invariably will impact everyone at every level in your organization and also the clients or customers that they're serving. So, Senior managers, one, have the first, first of all, the responsibility of clearly identifying what the systemic issues are and creating a plan to address them urgently. Two, senior managers need to be able to elicit very useful feedback or information from their employees, their clients or their customers in addressing that systemic issue. And they need to have the kind of, uh, they need to be adept at integrating that feedback uh, to address the problems or the challenges, those systemic challenges in a way that is effective. That's really well said, especially for such a complex issue. 
So, Andre, you talked about a lot of macro realities are dictated based on the decisions and the visions of the senior leadership. Of course, although you're not at the senior leadership level, as a middle level uh, manager, you still have a lot of power influences. You can help um, navigate and dictate in your daily work uh, work life, right? And so maybe since you, for the better lack of term, lack the current influence to help influence the macro realities, what are you doing and what are some of the skills and strategies you're using currently to help maneuver and navigate the micro or the micro ecosystems within the organization? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So so before I answer that, and, and, I, and I think it's it really would be rewarding to identify the best practices as a manager. Um, I, I want to say that I don't make a distinction between uh, macro and micro that clear distinction when it comes to organizational culture. I, I think that when we're talking about uh, organizational dysfunction or we're talking about organizational breakdown, some, some, some authors will just say mess, organizational mess, it, 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 it's usually on a spectrum because I, I will say that when I, when I say, hey, this organization is experiencing a systemic challenge, what I really mean it is that something that's inherent, that's culturally, in, is that, that's inherent to the culture of the organization and not necessarily that it's macro. Because one of the, the challenges that an organization may have is that it failed to prioritize training it's direct service providers, right? So it could be customer service representatives, it could be case managers, whoever it is that uh, whoever it is that their job is to engage with clients or with customers. Uh, a number of organizations that I've worked at, uh, they never prioritize training those folks. And so what happened was, once uh, there isn't the appropriate training that impacts client relationships, the quality of client engagement, it impacts uh, quality customer uh, services. And so what might happen is it moves from not prioritizing training, it goes to poor service, and then it leads to really poor reputation within the business community, within whatever uh, community it is. And so, it might seem like training is a micro issue, but it actually becomes a significant issue because as an organization, if you have a very negative or poor reputa reputation, that really then transitions into being systemic, right? And so it then is a responsibility again of uh, the senior leadership to figure out, hey, what exactly is happening here? How do we address it? How do we ensure that there is the necessary metrics or measurements to gather or elicit the kinds of data we need to fix this, right? And um, so yeah, so for me now, I, I, as, as a manager, one of the, the best practices I'd say I'd start there with training. I believe that professional development is crucial. In fact, uh, in the last, the last few years, certainly 2018 and 2019, um, opportunities for personal professional growth and development was listed among the top five reasons uh, employees leave their jobs, 
right so certainly there is money and you know so low income or whatever it is financial base but but one of the major reasons folks leave jobs is because they don't have adequate opportunities to actually grow not just not just upward mobility right so not just that just opportunities to to be trained and 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 to and to grow in the profession so as a manager at best practice to address some of these systemic challenges is want to ensure that the team you're working with the team that you lead is adequately trained right you're working on 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 capacity building i think one of the other areas is to create a feedback loop loop be very clear about that so one of the things i have done over the years as a manager is i have sent out feedback forms to to my my team members and they're they're asked to anonymously respond to this and it usually has the questions usually have a focus and the focus is usually based upon uh, feedback I've received from colleagues. Uh, for example, one was, hey, Andre, you know, I think that uh, your leadership would be enhanced if it was more focused on um, following through. So, you know, being accountable, right, and, and following through. So I, I mentioned that earlier because that's a big thing for me. And so the, the feedback form may have questions that are designed to elicit feedback from my team about my abilities to follow through. It could be in one case, uh, my focus was creating a feedback form that had questions that dealt with uh, uh, transactional relationships versus transformational relationships. I wanted to be able to see based upon the feedback of my team whether or not they perceived my leadership to be more transactional versus more transformational. So that helped. No, not every organization will lend itself to that kind of practice. I'm very, very careful as to how I even phrase, even name that feedback form. I don't call it an evaluation. It's not an appraisal. It's simply a feedback form. And so, so right. So Creating opportunities for feedback, ensuring that you prioritize training. These are these are ways in which you're able to equip. These are where you, ways you're able to garner useful information. Uh, I think also one of the things that I have I've I've been I've I've benefited a lot from, but I think have been crucial in in my own leadership is uh, check-ins. So check-ins. Different organizations may call it different. You know, it could be like formal supervision meetings that happens every week or bi-weekly. It's those one-on-one. By check-ins, I'm not talking about team meetings. That's important. But by, by check-ins, I mean I am meeting with one-on-one with a team member for 45 minutes. Uh, and it's an opportunity for us to address and talk about work-related matters and professional-related matters. Through these check-ins, I'm able to answer questions uh, in a very transparent manner and to respond to concerns as well, right? So that has been effective because check-ins, in my case at least, has have been very effective in me building rapport and me and, and me building that what I what I spoke to earlier, this whole currency of trust. You know, team members are able to get a sense of my humanity, to hear my opinions on things. You know, it could be talking about work, it could be talking about 
just a very a variety of things that impacts the way in which I or the team the team member navigates the world. And that probably bridges into the more transformational relationships rather than transactional, actually having those feedback feedback forms, check-ins, making sure that the employees know that you're listening to them, right? Um, and obviously that would yield trust very well. <clears throat> um, so I would like to kind of stay on this transformational transactional relationships. What are some other, I mean, it sounds like it boils down to trust and compassion, but I guess any strategies for really uh, creating those transformational relationships, whether it's with mentors or with mentees. Um, Because I think, especially in an associate position, it's sometimes intimidating to reach out to, say, the C-level executives and say, you know, even just go grab coffee or something. But are there any maybe questions that unlock certain doors in creating those relationships or strategies in navigating uh, mentee or mentor relationships? I, yeah, they are. I think uh, so. What I've what I've done at least over the summer is I I started working on what I've considered professional development solutions. So there are tools that just spreadsheets and they are utilized in they're 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 designed to be utilized in professional development training, right? And so I've used them. I, I had the chance to use them as a pilot with the team I work with, and it was very effective. Now, a crucial part of these tools is that they promoted the, sh- the sharing of stories, right? Storytelling, right? And so um, what I think is effective, whether or not you're using a specific tool, is you build relationships by telling stories, my role as an associate, my role as a manager, as a program supervisor, is to facilitate spaces where my team members feel open and even enthusiastic about sharing stories that are reaffirming to them and that reinforces uh, the best their best qualities or the, the the aspects of their experience or their journey that they can continue to anchor their work in, you know, and it's a sort of, um, there's this model that's called appreciative inquiry. And there's also, a, you, you know, there's motivational interviewing. So there are different, there are different approaches to that a manager may use to really build that kind of trust and that sort of mentorship relationship, I find that in my experience, the uh, creating opportunities for storytelling is is one uh, of those. Um, reaffirming uh, reaffirming the strengths of of your of your team is also a crucial one. Third thing is for the associate or the the manager, the leader, to work with. The team member to identify a pathway for promotion or for growth, right? So, depending on what the interest of the the um, employee is, for some employees I've worked with, their goal is promotion. So they're about, hey, I want to grow in this organization. For some, it's, hey, I want to enhance these professional skills. My interest right now isn't to go to another position in this organization. It's just to be better at this, uh, and so. Leaders, great leaders are the ones who are able to 
create that space. Tell your story. Who are you? What's your unique voice? What are the highs? What are the moments in your life where you felt like you were successful? And moving from that into now working with that 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 employee to root their action in those successes, in those past successes. Like, what were you doing at that time that led to your success? And how can you recreate that, right? Right now in your life, what are ways in which you can recreate that right now within the context of this job? And then also is figuring out what the motivation of the employee is. Is is his or her motivation a promotion? Is Is his or her motivation just skill development? and co-designing, co-creating a plan with this employee uh, with the hope of um, achieving achieving that goal or those goals. So it sounds like a lot of things that you're working on, your, your passion and your experiences are surrounding the, the, the culture, right? And of course, like organizational leadership is to lead to uh, create this curriculum for your team as a leader, which is something you've been doing. And I think it's awesome that you're creating this uh, self-sought-out mentorship or coaching opportunities for your team because when I first came on board to agency, one of my first questions I asked uh, to my current boss and the CEO was that, are there any current existing mentorship opportunities within the organization? Because if you look at a lot of data and then the Harvard Business School, they did uh, recently that uh, they tracked uh, very successful, high-qualified, high-achievers. I think they're all Ivy League grads. And then they tracked those and I think a uh, majority of them 78%, this is an arbitrary made up number. I forgot what the actual stats are, but a huge portion of people chose uh, external incentives such as like bonuses, uh, salary raise, promotion, the vertical uh, ladder movements, like upper mobilities that most millennials and most people in our age are interested in. But about 37% of those who are being tracked, they chose mentorships and the lifelong learning, the growth opportunities versus the monumental ones. Um, monetary ones, excuse me. And after 10 years, they found out that the people who chose mentorship uh, were climbing up at an expo- exponentially faster rate, even though their uh, motivation and goal wasn't to get promoted. But because they sought out after those transferable skills and those mentorship and networking, because that's what mentor is, right? Like you're a mentor to your team, you're a coach, because you want to help foster cultivate what they already have to bring them to like a new heights next level. And so I think it's awesome that you're working on this, uh, I guess, project of yours trying to implement this coaching model into your your check-ins, your curriculum that you're designing for the team. So in terms of the culture, uh, we love talking about culture and we spoke with our, our former, um, not former, our guest from a few episodes ago. He talked about his Wall Street culture. He talked about culture, uh, inheritance culture, whether that's that's being made by the leaders or it just come over accumulation of time. What do you think are like the greatest setbacks or the challenges you face trying to uh, create this culture of yours, this curriculum, this ecosystem on your level for your team? Yeah, I'll, very well said, by the way. I, I'll, I'll respond to this in a general way. Um, one of the major challenges is that there are high level decisions that I don't get to make. You know, there, there are, while I've been privileged uh, and I'm, and I've had the opportunity in different organizations to give voice to major decisions administratively when it comes to uh, human resources or professional development and even sometimes operations, just general operations. The, the reality is that there are other high-level decisions that influence 
culture and strategic planning, or at least the operationalizing of those strategic plans. I, I've not been, I, I've not had the the privilege of sitting at those tables and um, influencing those decisions. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues. Mm-hmm.